Good morning. My name's Katie. I'm the executive pastor here at Crossroads, and we are closing out our series called Serve Wars. We're awakening the force of servant leadership. It's my honor to be closing out this series. You know who's really in charge around here now? His name is Ryan Howell. He is in Mexico. No, I don't know where he is. He's in a warm place where there's, um, you know, emerald blue oceans and white soft sand, but Ryan left his clicker behind. Now, I am a novice with the clicker, so if we get this, you, you'll know that I've, I've become confused. I want to welcome you if you are here visiting us online or you're out in the atrium. It's good to be together today. This, this series, Serve Wars, is about awakening the force of servant leadership, and we're having it because we've all experienced this problem in our world that not all leaders are serving from a selfless or servant position. In fact, there's a lot of selfish leadership in the world, right? People have a position or they have a certain kind of power and instead of using it to serve others, they're using it to serve themselves. And we're trying to be empathetic in all of that by recognizing that when that happens, there's usually some kind of a fear that is driving that person to behave this way. So um, we're not just condemning ourselves when we misuse our power, but we're recognizing that it's happening because we're afraid of something. So in each one of these messages, we have talked about a different fear that happens in the human experience that causes us to misuse our power. Uh, Jesus showed us a better way and that we don't have to be afraid of leading from soft fronts and strong backs from being open-hearted and using a different kind of power. And we've learned we can defeat the dark side, and we've been talking about the principles that bring that into our life and that help us to become a transforming presence in the world, the type of person who can walk into the spaces that matter the most to us, like our family tables, like our marriages and most important relationships or parenting or classrooms or work or anything like that and be a transforming presence so that the kingdom of God moves forward in those really important spaces. And we've been working with an anchor verse. This is from Jesus, recognizing worldly power in leadership situations. And he brings it to the attention of his disciples and said, with you, it needs to be different. The greatest one among you should be the one who takes the lowest rank. The leader should be like a servant. And then we've turned this into a bit of a motto that I know will stick with me for the rest of my life. I cannot shake this from my head. The greatest one at the table always serves the potential sitting at the table. And this weekend, we're going to focus on how to raise courageous kids. We're actually going to focus on serving the potential at the table where the next generation is present and eager to learn and ready to go. But the problem, well, let me say this first. This is much broader than parenting. That's why I named it Raising Courageous Kids, because we're all influencing kids. So this is for co-parents and foster parents and adoptive parents. It's especially for our educators, our classroom teachers, our principals, those who might lead nonprofits that are benefiting the families and children, um, and our own youth leaders and our own volunteers in youth and student ministry, all of that. So let's think of it that way. The problem is we have a fear. Last night we talked about it at our Thursday night service, and I opened up by saying, what is so scary about kids? Because we're afraid of kids, right? Has anybody ever tried to hand you their newborn infant 
And they're like, hey, I don't want to hold that baby. I'm, I'm afraid of it, right? I was afraid of my kids when they were first graders, and here's the reason. They still couldn't read yet, right? They're going into that. Now I think kids learn to read earlier, but you know, first grade, mine learned to read. I was so afraid that my, my child wouldn't be, a first grader wouldn't be able to learn how to read. A fifth grader heading off to middle school, that's scary stuff. Facing a classroom of high schoolers and trying to teach and keep their attention and connect, it is super scary, but there is a worse fear. Much worse than these common fears we have about children. And if you succumb to this fear in your leadership around the next generation, you will become this person. That's how that happens. The fear I'm talking about is the fear of being unguarded. It's the fear of being open-hearted. I'm going to call it the fear of vulnerability and say this, and this is the first fill-in on your paper if you're following along. The dark side of leadership finds power in our parenting when the fear of vulnerability tricks us into being guarded rather than open-hearted with kids. Jesus noticed that adults tend to have this problem, and we try to keep the next generation at bay. Something about that fear. Uh, Jesus said, don't do that. Let the children come. Jesus said, observe children's ways and observe their free spirituality because that is exactly what you need to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus warned and said, children are vulnerable because of this unique strength and you better protect it. Woe to the person who takes advantage of the vulnerability of children. So we all know that was Jesus's attitude. And on our best days, that's exactly the attitude that we bring to our teaching or our parenting situations. So today we want to talk about the principles that will sow the power of vulnerability in our lives. I'm not really here today to tell you how to get your kids to do their homework how to do their chores, um, how to not give you lip, um, how to not uh, use their sexuality in uh, dangerous or unhealthy ways. All of that is way above my pay grade. I actually do not know how to make people do all those things. If I could, um, I would be rich. But what I do know is that the best shot you have at raising courageous kids is that you become a courageous human being yourself and you show up in their presence as such. That's the best shot that we've got. Uh, Dave and I raised four little women. Yeah, that was the day we paid someone to do our makeup. It works. That's our four little women. Um, oh, by the way, I'm going to be a Grammy. Yeah. My oldest daughter is the bride in that shot, and then um, Anne, who you may recognize as one of our worship leaders and our children's ministry director, she's going to have a baby, and I have more. I know the gender. I was told just recently, would you like to hear? I have permission to do the reveal, okay? After a whole generation, close to two or three, where we really don't know if girl bodies can make boy babies... They can. <laughs> We're going to have a little grandson. Well, our house growing up with these women was a mashup of movies and TV shows. We got little women. We got a, some little house on the prairie. Uh, we had Pride and Prejudice, the Bennett family, <laughs> uh, and Wonder Woman. 
I like to think of us as a colony of Amazons in training. It was a little bit like that. Um, Dave, yeah. Somebody said the name Dave. That's, that's my husband's name and the dad of these girls. And most of you know him as Charles Ingalls. <laughs> pa Ingalls, like the golden boy of the community that everyone looks to for wisdom, always has a smile on his face. But we often saw Dave a little bit differently. We saw him like Mr. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. I know I'm tapping into only a few of your... Uh, only a few of you know, but if you know the picture, you know what I mean. It's set in northern England, and this poor man's study is really dark, like there's never a light on in there, and he's usually seen with his head in his hands. Father of five girls with a crazy wife. Uh, I'm sure Dave would have liked to be the dad in Little Women. That guy went off to war and didn't show up through the rest of the story. And uh, the Wonder Woman guy, he just, he crashes, uh, and the Amazons save him and he gets to learn bravery from them. Uh, but the truth is, Dave and I spent a lot of time and hard work raising these little girls in, into these um, brave young women. We, we tried really hard. I was into natural childbirth. I did really well in the infancy stage. I was good at getting babies to sleep and figuring out when to feed them and all that kind of stuff. And then one day they learned to talk and run around, and I wasn't as good a parent for a little while because that, that messed with my head. My youngest daughter, Amy, bit the Sunday school teacher, and yes, it did break the skin. Annie, your children's ministry director, she let a jailbreak out of a Sunday school room when she was two. <laughs> being a little church rat and being at the church all the time because I was a worship leader, she would spend the second service and sort of like hang out in the more nursery-ish area where there were crawlers, and one day I'm leading worship from the piano on a platform like this, and I see babies crawling up the aisle off to the side over there. Two or three of them, people, worshipers are getting out of their seats, scooping up babies and going, whose child is this? Turns out Anne opened up the gate. And then little Carrie disrupted a memorial service one time. Again, I was stuck at the piano, and I told her, she's, she's about five, I said, you sit with Bob. Bob was the sound guy back there. I said, you sit with Bob. Here's some stuff to color on and all of that. Then there was an open mic time at the funeral. I'm waiting at the piano for the next song and I see my five-year-old in a queue of people ready to give a testimony about the deceased at the mic. <laughs> I'm like, well, I wonder what she's going to say. She said, I don't know him, but he sounds very nice. And then uh, stuff got more serious. I call it the day that we lost Nemo. Because eventually your heart gets broken growing up, right? And we lost Nemo. Nemo was a little squeezy fish that belonged to Carrie, the witness at the funeral. And she loved this Nemo, and she held it in her hot little fist all the time. She slept with it. She took it into the bathtub with her, and she took it to church. And one day a little boy dropped Nemo in the toilet in the Sunday school room right in front of, of, of Carrie. And when she worked up the courage to reach her little hand into the toilet water, he flushed. And Nemo went away. And life gets harder than that, doesn't it? We lose grandparents in our families. Um, sometimes our children lose their health or are born with a health crisis. Uh, we lose friends. And it can bring utter heartbreak into our lives as parents or teachers or whatever we do. So we work hard. We lose sleep. Um, Dave and I argued and yelled and cried. And we just did our best 
to be servant leaders and try to find a little bit of joy and fun along the way. The truth is raising courageous kids is hard. It takes skill and resilience and endurance, but the most important thing is to learn how to be open-hearted what I call wholehearted. I have this new passion as an empty nester. Uh, I took a little bit of training with Brene Brown's organization in the daring way. So I get to teach workshops on courage building for teachers, for parents, for leaders. We talk about four courage building skills. Those four skills are rumbling with your vulnerability, clarity of values, trust, and learning to rise. And what we're gonna do in this time we have is we're gonna talk about the power of vulnerability or that one skill of rumbling with vulnerability. And I'm gonna say that it is a skill. I'm gonna say it's 100% teachable. And I know it's modeled by Jesus. It's taught by the Apostle Paul. We see it all over the scriptures. And I wanna take us into the Bible for a minute. We'll look at a very, very, very old story. And then we'll look at a very, very old lesson. Everything in the Bible is really very old. <laughs> but we're going to go all the way back to the oldest material. You, you can figure these, these things were happening at least 4,000 years ago. And we'll look at the Bible's wisdom from the Old Testament, the oldest stuff, and then we'll look at something to do with the Apostle Paul. But the very old story is about Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just... Praise the Lord. That's how pa, pa Ingalls taught it to his girls. And then we did like this with our fingers and turned in a circle. Um, but there's more about Abraham. His first son was named Ishmael. And Ab uh, I'm sorry, Abraham's first son was named Ishmael. And Ishmael's mother was named Hagar. And here's the thing. Um, uh, Hagar was not Abraham's wife. Abraham's wife was named Sarah. And Sarah was childless. And she became incredibly scared and incredibly stressed out and incredibly sad and lonely. And this stress uh, caused her to take some weapons into her dark cave. Um, she asked Abe to get her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, pregnant. And then when that happens, she can't bear the stress and strain of the emotional triangle that she has created. So two times she banishes Hagar out into the desert to die. And uh, both times an angel of the Lord comes to Hagar in the desert and rescues her. And Hagar's story functions in our Bible as an illustration of relational injustice and God's saving love. The angel is the first sighting of the Christ presence in the scriptures. The first sighting. The Christ presence is what you would think. It's that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in you. The Christ presence is that second person of God, the son who was with God in the beginning at creation and is that speaking God that speaks worlds into being. That Christ presence is the God in Jesus who is the brilliant teacher, the God in Jesus who is the embodiment, embodiment of God in every single way. That's the Christ presence. So there's the first sighting. And then Hagar is the first person in recorded history to come face to face with Christ and to name this presence Lord God. The first person to see it. And the story says 
that she could see it because this God could see her. She felt seen. She opened up her heart to be vulnerable in some way or another. I believe that's what the, te- the story is teaching us. That the one who first was able to name God for us, and this gets into the Hebrew scriptures, Lord God. So one of the names for God in the Old Testament is this name that Hagar gave God, the one who sees me. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And so the meaning of this story for wholehearted leaders is that when tough stuff happens to you in your family or your school setting, you can know that the presence of God's saving love is with you. You are never alone. Whether you're the victim of the difficulty or you're the perpetrator of it. Because the story we know better is how God's saving love stuck with the perpetrators of problems in this story. The Abraham figure, the Sarah figure, and God didn't remove God's promises from those people either. We are imperfect human beings. The learning is that the promises of God are carried forward in the stories from generation to generation by people who are a mixed bag of deception, manipulation, and abuse of power. We are not having this series on servant leadership because all those people out there misuse their power. That would not make any sense at all, would it? (laughs) We're spending seven, eight weeks on this topic because we succumb to these fears. We do that, and God wants us to be more courageous and to know the truth. The Apostle Paul also understood that the power and energy of God's saving love are not carried by perfectly moral people. They're carried by the seemingly disqualified like us, by the, teacher, the classroom teachers in this room who lose our, our cool in a difficult management situation, the parents in this room who are having difficulty. And the Apostle Paul talked about our weaknesses a lot. It's one of the big themes from Paul in the New Testament. He wrote numerous letters to people in various geographic locations. And what's so cool about these short letters that are in the Bible is that the themes become obvious to us. And the strongest theme in my mind is that it is in our weakness that the power of God works most fluidly through us. Do you recognize that from Paul? In his weakness, in my weakness, God shows himself as powerful, and I show up as strong. I have an experience of strength, even though I'm weak. And my favorite spot where this is discussed is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of the spots where Paul teaches technically what it means for the spirit of the living Christ or the Christ presence to be strong in us. Do I have that passage up? Nope, here it comes. Okay. But we have this treasure in clay jars, he begins. We have a treasure in clay jars. So that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. I want us to talk through what this means. There are fill-ins for you if, you're, if you want to remember this stuff. We means all people, 
Very simply, we human beings have something. We have a treasure. The treasure is the Christ presence. I'm just going to keep using that word because that's what I used for it, uh, said about it when, when Hagar encountered the Christ presence in the desert. The clay jar is your life or your soul, as you might imagine. It's your life or your soul. And the death of Jesus are the sacrifices that Jesus and his followers make that create life and power in the human experience. The sacrifices made by Jesus and his followers. Now in Romans chapter 12, Paul gives a litany of what these things look like. And you'll recognize as I kind of list them, it's things like forgiveness. It's a sacrifice we make that has a power to heal and redeem. It is mercy over judgment. I think Ryan talked about that in one of the previous messages. It's showing people mercy and practicing non-judgment. It's honoring others above ourselves. It's showing hospitality and being open-hearted. It's associating with people of low position, and it's being a peacemaker in your community, your relationships, your leaders, your, your leadership by withholding the drive to take corrective action or vengeance or resentment as a tool, leaving corrective action to God. Those are little deaths. Those are sacrifices. That's what Paul means by carrying around in your body the death of Jesus. That's what he means. He means we practice this. We carry it around in our very clay container, our actual actions, and it produces power and it changes lives. The life of Jesus is the power of resurrection that comes out of this self-giving way of life. And always being given up to death for life simply implies a cycle or a pattern of death and resurrection. We sang about it in the song, The Passion. I think it was the second song that we sang this morning. There's a cycle of death and resurrection in the physical universe and also in our souls, our lives, our clay container. The point is that in order to raise courageous kids, we have to become authentic containers of God's saving love. We need our kids to see us forgiving and perhaps even redeeming our own imperfect parents, forgiving our own imperfect parents, redeeming them, bringing them into the family circle, letting them be at the family table, perhaps. But being an authentic container of God's saving love also means that we keep healthy boundaries with, with challenging people. Our kids need to see us keep healthy boundaries. They need to see you practicing self-compassion. Do you drink when you're thirsty? Do you sleep when you're tired? Do you stop when you've just expended all your energy and all your creativity is gone and restore your energy? Do you forgive yourself? Our kids need to see us saying, I'm sorry, when we have a meltdown. And being able to talk them through the series of things that happened in our heads and our hearts that led to that meltdown. They need, to, they need to know that we know what our emotions are when they show up in our clay jar. And we have to be able to talk about that. We have to be able to talk about it. 
And then when the time is right, they need to hear us sharing our vulnerable stories of mistakes and personality flaws. And when we've been persecuted and mistreated and banished out to the desert by somebody who was mean to us, they need to hear how God rescued us, how we were redeemed, how we forgave, how we came back, and why we decided, you know, to look at the next dark cave and say, yeah, that's really bad, but I'm going in again without my weapons. And here's how it works. That's what our kids need to be able to see. The most important factor is that you show up as you. That's what raises courageous kids. The key factor is the presence and the influence of a wholehearted adult in that child's life. People who've learned how to rumble with their own vulnerability and can show up as a model, an example, as a mirror. Here's what it looks like. And if you're one who has bought into the cultural myths of vulnerability that Perry actually brought up when she talked about our care and support groups, instead of the power of vulnerability, if you've bought in, it's going to be hard for you to be that mirror and that model. It's hard for all of us. We have learning to do. Wholehearted leadership is the key to raising courageous kids, but we have bought into myths about vulnerability instead. Before I name these myths and we talk about the power that's ours, I want to acknowledge the difficulty of the dark side caves that many of us, are being called into, most of us, all of us. The difficulty of the dark side caves, all of us are called into. In this area of raising kids, we're called into dark caves of co-parenting, where it's not just about mirroring and modeling to your own child, but it's about negotiating and navigating conversations and schedules with a co-parent. This is very difficult in single parenting, where there are less resources to go around. This is very difficult in married parenting where part of your energy has to be in building this relationship with this other adult, and that might be one of the biggest challenges of your life. There's the dark cave of raising teenagers. Teens in the room, there is the dark cave of having a parent who hasn't learned how to rumble with their own vulnerability. We're just on the journey of learning right alongside you. There's no secret knowledge here. It never ends. Teenagers face that dark cave. They face those conversations with parents that are not going to go well. There are special needs. There's infants and toddlers. And in education and our nonprofits, there's lack of resources. There's hostile school boards. There's difficulties. Dark caves. But the level of courage that's needed in these caves does not change the fact that your power is in your vulnerability. What did Yoda say right before Luke walked into that cave? Your weapons, you will not need them. He said, what do I take into the cave with me? Or, or wait, oh, he said, what's in there? And Yoda said, only what you take in. We take our vulnerability, our values, things like that into that cave. We've got a real good shot. The myths about power in the culture are strong, but we can override them. And we can become the authors of better stories in our homes, our schools, and our youth groups. And I believe we can become Jedis at rumbling with vulnerability and wholehearted leadership. Uh, so here's, um, 
here's the first myth. It's that, oh, oops, I missed one. Yoda, he said, your weapons, you will not need them. Vulnerability is a weakness. That's a myth. Vulnerability is actually courage. Let me explain. In my family of origin, going back several generations, there was a family story from southern Minnesota called Let the Gypsies Come. Now, apparently, the circus was coming through a small rural town. This is between the two world wars. And the father of the family walked into the kitchen and said to mom in front of two daughters, the gypsies are coming through town. And one of the little girls started crying. And she said, I don't want the gypsies to come through town. And the other little girl ran out to the yard, picked up a ball bat, dialed it up over her shoulder, and said, let those gypsies come. And so in this family, we see two different ways of dealing with fear, right? Two different ways of feeling vulnerable. One person picks up a bat. Another person says, I'm scared, I'm scared, and goes to the apron strings. Very common in a family. And I just wonder, what would have happened if these parents had empathized with both of the girls? Now, this became a valorized, heroic story about the girl with the bat. What would have happened if, if these parents had been empathetic with both girls and said, I'm scared too. It's kind of weird when strangers come to town, especially when they speak a different language. You know what I think we should do? I think we should make a point of meeting these people. If we have the opportunity, let's have a picnic in the yard. But here's what I know for sure. Once you talk to these people who are coming through our town, you will not be scared of them anymore. I'm pretty darn sure. Let's try it. We'll do it, we'll do it together. See, when we use armor or we reward armor, we miss the chance to mirror true courage. The vulnerability is where the courage lies, not the weapon and not the fear. Myth number two is that I can opt out of vulnerability, but you can't. To be alive is to be vulnerable, and here's the definition of vulnerability. It is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Doesn't sound fun. And people have all kinds of loopholes about why this might not fit in their life and why what I'm saying doesn't make sense. Uh, there's the I don't do vulnerability, I'm just kind of past that, or it's not my personality, it's not the way I roll. Uh, there's I can see how vulnerability might be something to bring into my life so I could be a more balanced person. There's I can see how vulnerability is useful up to a point in a situation, but when is it time to just stand up, take action, and be courageous? And I think that's a really honest question. I remember when the book Daring Greatly came out and Dr. Brene Brown was being interviewed by the CBS Morning Anchors. And there were three of them. And the two women there were so excited. They had their, their, uh, their uh, I'm sorry, it was Daring Leadership. They had their Daring Leadership book and they have it open and it's all highlighted and they're reading passages and all that. And one of the anchors is not participating in the conversation. And eventually this guy pipes in at the very end of the interview and he said, I think that's all really, really good. But help us to understand when instead of doing vulnerability, we just need to take action. And she said, that's a really good question. I've asked thousands of military personnel that question. Generals, colonels, soldiers, thousands. And every time our Daring Way team teaches this and asks that question, uh, we say, is there ever 
a time, an example of bravery without uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? And the answer is no, ma'am. There is no such thing as bravery without uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And so the lesson from this is that if, if you're not feeling uncomfortable when you're taking an action, it's just not an example of courage. It may be day-to-day -day management. You might be an excellent manager of certain things that other people are afraid of. That's great. For a dad with authority, it doesn't take a lot of courage to just lay down the law. This is what's got to happen with chores and money and curfews in order for you to use that car. I don't think many of us would call that an example of heroism or bravery, it's day-to-day -day management. But when that dad has to sit next to his son and talk about his journey from addiction into recovery, now that's gonna take courage because it requires some risk, some emotional exposure. And so much of parenting is unpredictable. On Thursday night when we said, you know, what's so scary about kids? I thought the most astute answer in the room was, well, they're unpredictable. That's what's scary about it. We don't know what's going to happen next. So when we step into unpredictability and show up with our heart open, then that's courage. And kids learn it from us. Myth number three is that vulnerability is oversharing. Um, none of us like oversharing except the people that overshare. <laughs> when we're doing it, it feels like something we need to do. It often disconnects or it connects superficially, whereas vulnerability is sharing with the intention to connect. It's about trust and intimacy and connection. And sometimes we overshare because we, we need attention. Sometimes we're desperate. We just have a story and it needs to get out there. Sometimes we're desperate for connection. In my opening, I told funny stories about my family. That's not vulnerability. I was superficially making a bid for connection with all of you, that you could laugh, that you could recognize some of my funny stories. Vulnerability is when I show up and with people who've earned the right to hear my hardest life stories, I really tell the truth. And we have to know who's earned the right and where that makes sense and when we can do that. But when we do, it's being vulnerable, and there's power there. Rule of thumb, vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. That's part of it. And myth number four is that we can go it alone. You know, we romanticize the idea that we can do vulnerability alone, and we can't, because the point is to connect. When we talk about this topic of vulnerability, um, sometimes there's a, an uh, ASL, American Sign Language, a translator for the deaf and hard of hearing. So we talk about, okay, how are we going to sign this word? Vulnerability. And here's one suggestion. Goes like that. It means weaken the knees. And we can see how that could mean vulnerability, right? But it's not quite right. Because it doesn't get at the power of vulnerability. So another suggestion is this. Hold on to my jacket lapels right here and do this. Now we're getting at it. But the thing that's weird is when we do this, it always feels like this. And that's how we know that we're there. And that's where our hearts open up in our relationships with our kids. Antoinette Tuff is um, a woman with soul 
In 2013, she went to work at McNair Discovery Learning Center, which is a preschool where she'd been the school's bookkeeper for years. And on that same day, Michael Hill showed up with an automatic assault rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition, and he was planning to deaden his own pain by firing that weapon in that preschool. Miraculously, everyone survived, including Hill, thanks to Tuff and her ability to carry on a connecting and vulnerable conversation. She made a connection with the police and she was able to keep the, uh, uh, Hill took Tuff hostage. And she was able to keep the police at bay by making a connection and convincing her that she had a shot at this peacemaking thing. And uh, she connected with Hill. She learned his name. She learned about his life story. She offered him choices. She said, you don't have to shoot. I know what it's like to want to take that kind of action because I attempted suicide two years ago. And she, she learned his name, and she even called him her kin. She said, because my mo own mama was a hill. She connected with him. She showed her big heart to hill. She shared her imperfect life story. She shared her wounds and her soul. And in doing so, she tapped into extraordinary nonviolent instincts. And reporters later asked her how she, how she learned what she did in that room that day. And she said, Jesus taught me. He was my focus and his ways through the entire ordeal. All I thought about was Jesus' ways of sacrifice, like forgiveness, like empathy and connection, like non-judgment, and I just kept telling myself, this person deserves that same human dignity in this moment, and that's the only shot I've got at being a peacemaker. That's the power of vulnerability, and that's how servant leadership can change the world. We have a video clip of um, Dr. Brene Brown reading something called the wholehearted parenting manifesto and uh, this is a picture of what that looks like in our own homes at our family tables let's watch so can you read the parenting manifesto i can yes and this is every every home has to have its own manifesto yeah but i love this for people to sort of incorporate as their own and adjust as as, as they will but Above all else, I want you to know that you are loved and lovable. You're saying this to your children? Yes. Okay. You will learn this from my words and my actions. The lessons on love are in how I treat you and how I treat myself. I want you to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. You will learn that you are worthy of love, belonging, and joy every time you see me practice self-compassion and embrace yes. my own imperfections. Yes. We will practice courage in our family by showing up, letting ourselves be seen, and honoring vulnerability. We'll share our stories of struggle and strength. There will always be room in our home for both. We will teach you compassion by practicing compassion with ourselves first, then with each other. I want you to know joy, so together we'll practice gratitude. I want you to feel joy, so together we'll learn how to be vulnerable. Together we'll cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. Oh, I'm gonna cry right now. We all want a mother like that, and a dad. Okay. Okay. As you begin your wholehearted journey, the greatest gift that I can give to you is to live in love with my whole heart and to dare greatly. 
I will not teach or love or show you anything perfectly, but I will let you see me, and I will always hold sacred the gift of seeing you, truly deeply seeing you. I, I just wish everybody could live by those words, really. Me we too. Would, that's how you change the world. I believe it. And so our next steps, maybe you struggle with being open-hearted and you need a place to share your vulnerable stories. You might want to see a care minister on our team. They're amazing at listening. Uh, you might want to learn more about raising courageous kids or creating a daring classroom or you being a courageous youth leader. And uh, on that green insert in your program is an opportunity where you could attend a workshop about that and you could, you could take that step. Perhaps you have the gift of compassion and empathy and you are good at this vulnerability thing. In a room like this, there's at least a third of us are already master Jedis. And you might wanna become a care minister at Crossroads. Or maybe you want to volunteer with children and students during Our Kids at Worth, Our Kids Are Worth It Mission Emphasis Year of 2020. Where we're going to end this series by taking communion together. The beautiful thing about communion is that we are celebrating the gifts of, of thanksgiving that God has given us. God has poured so much goodness into our lives. And I'm not sure we really named the joy of children in this whole talk. But as you hold your cup of juice in your hand, I want you to remember that God has poured these gifts of the next generation out into our laps. It is a miracle of creativity on God's part. And remember that. And hold that cup and remember that the power of God's saving love is flowing through your very life to invest in the next generation. And then as you hold the cracker, which is what we have here, always gluten-free crackers, it's kind of jagged and rough around the edges, and it represents Christ's broken body for sure, but it also represents our imperfection, our vulnerability, your clay jar. So hold those two things in your hand once you get them. Reflect on that. Take that whenever you're ready. Join us in worship of this song whenever you're ready. The hosts are down front here and also sort of midway through the room. So just come to the nearest station, walk forward to the nearest station. If you're new, just follow the crowd. <laughs>